0: morning. While I'm getting set up here, uh, you should turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, Romans chapter 1. Our text today is going to be uh, 16 and 17. And while you're turning there, let me introduce myself. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm Stephen Jackson. I'm a Retired PCA minister, that's a small conservative Presbyterian denomination. And uh, I don't want you to be ter- too worried about that. I do have some good Baptist credentials. My, uh, my mother was a big worker down in the Baptist center. She worked with uh, Reverend Dean. And uh, she also has probably as many uh, women that she taught in the city as, as, as any person that I know. Some, some people sitting here in this uh, congregation may not know it, but probably their mothers were taught by her. I, there's one person sitting in this congregation that I know he, he knows his mother was taught by my mother. And I was taught by my mother. So she was a good Baptist, so I got some credentials there. A uh, little bit more about me. I've got three children. One of them lives in town. His name is Stephen Jackson also. He's a lawyer here in town. And uh, he married Susan Barlow. She was also a Savannah girl. Actually, her father was also a minister. So it was two preacher's kids getting together. His was sort of a sad ending. But anyway, I was uh, in a church in Charlotte, and I came down here to marry them, and the Barlows were attending independent Presbyterian church. And so a lot of my elders came with me down for this celebration of my son's marriage uh, to Susan, And when they got inside of Independent Presbyterian Church, of course, it's a very historic church in uh, Presbyterian circles, and they were just amazed by that big high pulpit. And so after the ceremony, all of them crawled up there. And they, uh, (laughs) yeah, well, you don't want to listen to a sermon there, you break your neck looking up. But but anyway, when they crawled up there, they saw a, a sign there, and it was a Bible verse taken from the Gospels, when uh, Philip came to Jesus, Uh, there were some Greeks that approached Philip. And they said to him, Sir, we would see Jesus. And my uh, elders saw that sign, and when I retired, uh, they made a little portrait of me, and they put at the bottom of that, Sir, we would see Jesus. So I want to let you know that that's what we're going to be doing here today. I'm going to try to let you see Jesus. You'll also probably be uh, relieved to know that this confession of faith that the uh, 1689 London Baptist uh, Convention is actually not the outline of my sermon. It, uh, <laughs> it is the subject of my sermon. It is the subject of my sermon. And it's, it's there in everything that I'm going to say I'm trying to faithfully take from these doctrines that have been agreed upon uh, in the church. And, but it's also got the scriptural proofs. So it'll help you when you're evaluating what I say to be able to take this home, look at what the elders of the church uh, believe. This is what Spurgeon believed. This is what all the, the great preachers in the Baptist tradition of the old historic Protestant tradition believed and talk, so you can go home, because Bob's always faithful, one of the reasons I love being here. He's just like me, in so many ways. His life, you can tell it, every week that he changes, you can tell that he's always been learning from the Word of God, and he's always been changing. He's been changing his life in accordance with the Word of God. So, Having said that, let us go to the Word of God. This will be the inerrant, infallible part of of the sermon. The rest you're going to have to check out when you go home. Paul writes I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God, revealed from faith for faith, as it is written the righteous shall live by faith. In the year 1555, two bishops of the English Church, the Church of England, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were sentenced to death for believing and preaching evangelical doctrine. The two men were tied to a stake and they were surrounded with piles of wood which they were sitting on top of tied to the estate. And they were, well, burning to death was the prescribed penalty for heretics who taught or believed doctrine that was contrary to the doctrine of the established church. So as the flames curled around them, Ridley's legs burst into flames, And he began to scream in agony. And his friend, Latimer, tried to encourage him. And he spoke these words, he said, play the man and be of good courage. This day we shall light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Sorry, I get emotional when I think of those guys. Of course, these two men were not the first to fuel the great revival of the church that we speak of today as the Protestant Reformation. Thousands had paid for their beliefs with their lives before Latimer and Ridley were ever burned, and tens of thousands would pay in the future. It's disturbing when we hear about our brothers and sisters in the Lord being tortured and killed. But, you know, we hear about it today and our eyes fill with tears. But it's but it's the persecutions during the Reformation are even more disturbing. Because it was carried out by profession, professing Christians who held most of the same teachings from the scriptures that the Reformers believed in. The Reformers were not after starting a new church. They were trying to reform the one that they had. And the traditional historic believing Roman Catholic, old days anyway, confessed this. They believed that the Bible was the inerrant word of God. Check. They believe that Christians are saved by grace. Check. They believe that Christians are saved by faith. Check. They believed that Christians were saved by the merits of Jesus Christ. Check. And that God should be glorified for the salvation of sinners. Check. I hope everybody else could check off with his Roman Catholic beliefs just like I did. Because, in fact, it is the biblical truth taught by Jesus Christ and his apostles and has been believed by all the Christian churches at all times. And by the way, the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, was a particular stalwart. It should not escape your you'll notice that the book that I'm reading to is the book that was written to the Romans. All right. So the first congregation ever to hear from the Apostle Paul in regards to the truth was the Roman Catholic Church. And in fact, if you follow their history, you will find that at times they were in fact a stalwart for the truth at times. But though they had the truth It had been corrupted by additions to this truth that were not true. And in fact, the additions to the Bible became so numerous that it was difficult to be able to discern the gospel. So the reformers of the church developed five principles that they were basing their reformation on. And they were sola scriptura, Which means solo, if you sing a solo, you're alone, right? That means scripture alone. Gracia, sola gracia, which means grace alone. Sola fadia, which means faith alone. Sola christa, which means Christ alone. And sola gloria deo, that means glory to God alone. You see, the Roman Catholic. Church taught that the foundation for faith and practice was a combination of the scriptures, of sacred traditions, and the teachings of the magisterium, church councils, and the Pope. The reformers said no. Remember what Luther taught? Popes have erred, councils have erred, the church has erred. He stood on the Word of God alone they said no the scripture alone which the which means the only source of special written revelation that has the authority to bind the conscience of man is the bible alone it doesn't mean that you can't learn anything anywhere else if you want to learn how to cook a cherry pie go ask your mother you're not going to get it out of the bible If you want to learn how to build a house Go ask a builder. You're not going to learn that out of the Bible. But if you want to know what should bind your conscience in regards to the faith and practice of the Christian church, the only thing that can bind your conscience is the Bible alone. That was a thunderbolt. That was a thunderbolt. The second thing that the Roman Catholic Church taught is that they were saved by a combination of God's grace the merits are the works that we do that are accumulated by our faith and our penance and our good works. And the excess merits of the saints that they had accumulated, they were so good that they did so many other good things that they could let us borrow some. The, res- the, the reformers responded, no. Sola gratia. Grace alone. God's grace. God's free grace. God's unmerited Grace. That was it. The Roman Catholic Church taught that we are justified by faith and works that we produce, which the righteousness that God, inf- which God, that, that righteousness that we produce and in the, in the, in the righteousness of Christ, God infuses into us through faith. And that he counts for our righteousness. That's what they taught. My wife told me not to do this. She said, just preach the Bible. But to answer this one. I'm actually going to quote the confession and maybe take out a little bit of the language that they use, but this was the response of the Reformers. This was the response of the Baptist Church in response to the established church. Those whom God is effectually calleth, he also freely justifies. Not by infusing righteousness into them. Not, you see that not, that's big, okay, But by pardoning their sins and accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them, nor done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself. uh Uh-oh. There's a lot of us that do that. Not by imputing faith itself. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and sole righteousness by faith, a faith they do not have of themselves. It is a gift of God. That is what the historic Protestant church believed. I think that we need to believe that. The Roman Catholic Church taught that we are saved by the merits of Christ and the saints and that we approach God through Christ, the saints, and Mary who all pray and intercede for us. The the reformers responded, no. We are saved by the merits of Christ alone and we come to God through Christ alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught what Martin Luther called the theology of glory as opposed to what he taught, which was the theology of the cross, which means that in the end, those who are justified by God are justified because we become glorious just like Christ. He taught that we cannot be, the Roman Catholic Church taught that we cannot be justified until in fact we are sanctified. And when they believed in grace, God was doing it by grace through all those things and instruments they had to do that by. But until that time, you were not justified. Luther taught that that was taken care of at the cross and that it was given to us by faith in Christ alone, that you are justified from the moment that you first believe. So, in the Roman Catholic Church, if you died with unconfessed mortal sins for which you have not done penance and you have not done the proper things to get you back into uh, grace, then uh, you have no hope. You will go to hell. And for venial sins, those lesser things... Maybe you get suffering in purgatory for 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years, depending on how much money your church has to get some of those excess merits out for Mary and get that. So if you have a, a mortal sin on your soul when you die, you're going to hell and there's no hope for you. If you just have a little bit left to be before you can be glorious and, and, and considered to be righteous and acceptable by God, then you can go to pur- pur- purgatory. Now, I don't think a lot of Protestants understand the burden that that puts on people that believe it. so I, I went to the Roman Catholic website that uh, it's kind of their event their, their outreach for Roman Catholics and I got their article on moral versus venial sin and forgive me for reading this to you but I, I and I if I just tell you about it you might not think it's true but I'm going to read it to you and you'll see this is exactly what they teach and, by the way, a lot of what they're teaching here is true as far as what the penalty for sin is. I'd even go further than that. I'd say venial sins deserve hell. All right? But here's what they say. A serious grave or mortal sin is the knowing and willful violation of God's law in a serious matter. For example, here's examples of mortal sin that you can't do. Are you going to hell if you don't get it taken care of before you die. Idolatry, adultery, murder, slander. These things are gravely contrary to the love we owe God and because of him our neighbor. Now we do owe all of that. We owe that love to God and we owe it to our neighbors. That's right, we have the law of love. But all of those things are mortal sins if we do them. As Jesus taught, when condemning, condemning even a woman looking at a woman lustfully, sin can be both interior choices of the will alone, or exterior choices of the will carried out into action. A man who will who willfully desires to fornicate, steal, or murder someone other, has committed a grave sin. Even if he thinks about it, he has already seriously offended God by choosing interiorly what God has prohibited. Mortal sin is mortal because it is the spiritual death of the soul, separation from God. If we are in a state of grace, meaning you've been saved, all right? you believed in Jesus, you got baptized, you're part of the church, and you're happy you, you're in a state of grace. When Christ comes back, you have all kind of hope of, of being welcomed into his kingdom. If we are in a state of grace, it loses this supernatural life for us. If we die without repenting, we lose him for eternity. However, by turning our hearts back to him and receiving the sacrament of penance, we are restored to his friendships. Catholics are not allowed to receive communion if they have unconfessed unconfessed mortal sins. Venial sins are slight sins. They do not break fellowship with God, although they injure it. They involve disobedience to the law of God, a slight venial manners. If we gossip and destroy someone's reputation, that would be a mortal sin. You're going to hell for that if you gossip about somebody and hurt their reputation. Some of our, uh, some of our politicians all think about that. However, normally gossip is about trivial matters and only venial sinful. It's just a little sin to gossip. Additionally, something that is otherwise mortal sin, slander, may in a, in a particular case be only venial sin. The person may have acted without reflection or under force of habit, thus not fully intended the action of their guilt before God, and that guilt is reduced. It is always good to remember, especially those of us who are trying to be faithful, but sometimes fall, for that mortal sin must be is is not only must be a serious matter, but the person must know that it's serious and then freely commit it. So if you know something's a sin and you commit it, it's definitely a mortal sin. If you don't know, maybe it's just a venial sin, unless it's a real bad one like I mentioned before. These two categories of sin are explicitly to be found in the sacred scripture, that's true. I mean, sin is found in scripture. I don't know if the Lord didn't designate between venial and and mortal. they're all mortal in, in my book. In the Old Covenant, there were sins that merited the death penalty and sins that, married, that, that could be expiated by an offering. This law was the teacher and prepared the way for faith. In the New Covenant, these material categories were replaced by spiritual ones, natural death for eternal life, <clears throat> natural death in the Old Covenant, eternal death in the New. So you might rather have been born in the Old covenant, I guess, I don't know. There are thus daily faults for which we must daily ask forgiveness. And then he gives a couple of scripture verses. Now perhaps, if you follow me, and I know that was difficult, I know it's difficult to follow when someone's reading to you, but now perhaps you understand why the motto of the Reformation was after darkness, light. Perhaps you understand why Latimer and Ridley preferred to be burned to death rather than put out the light of the free grace and gospel of Jesus Christ. The last solo is to God alone be the glory. And that, of course, makes sense. If salvation is, in fact, monergistic, which means that all of our salvation is from God. We do nothing Jesus does it all our salvation is 100% the work of of God for you and in you now before i go on and i am actually going to get around to exegeting this text in a minute there's four important facts i want to mention and these would have been in the sermon but i had to edit them out because i you know you didn't you didn't pack lunches and I knew you didn't so I'm just going to throw these out and then you can go home and think about them when you get there but there's four points I want to make because I don't want you to misunderstand the free grace of of, of God in Christ the reformers did not teach that a man is free from his obligation to keep the law they did not teach that and that's an error what is the law The law is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul and your neighbor as yourself. That is the law. So any creature made in the image of God will forever be obligated to love God. That is not what they meant. Some of the people that the Roman Catholic Church condemned who were influenced by the teaching of Luther actually took this to mean that, you know, hey, We don't have to worry about it. We are free from the law. So Jesus has freed us to go do whatever we want. And we ought to do it. And if we don't do what we want, then we're denying the gospel. They they formed a town in in Munster and they took over the place. And they did away with marriage. And so there was adultery and fornication all over the place. They were drinking, carousing, and all, all to the glory of Christ. And it got so bad and the crime got so bad in the place... That they actually you know the church asked the civil magistrate say go out there and, and, and take care of that and you know what I don't even blame them for saying that you know they, they were killing themselves they were they were completely what you call antinomian so the reformers did not teach that man is free from his obligation to keep the law. The reformers did teach that Christ is the end of the law for justification. Which means the legal judgment of God that we are not guilty, that we are just, is is not based upon our law keeping. Next, well, in addition, we are not declared righteous because we love perfectly. But because of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us. Third. Being sanctified is not optional. God does not, God does change you, right? I know that justification is by faith alone and Christ alone, and we have nothing to do with that, His righteousness alone, but the Roman Catholics were right. Don't, don't get to the, to the point where you think that there is not an infuse or a righteousness that, cro- that God is working in you. That's what regeneration is. That's what sanctification is. The difference between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church is they believe you had to be sanctified in order to be justified. And the Reformers say, no, no. If you're justified, then you're going to get the gift of sanctification. Right? Love stems from Christ. You don't get Christ because you love. You love because you get Christ. That was the big difference, all right? I, I want you to get that in your in your mind. It's very important. I know you got this. I hear the reason I come here is I hear this gospel preached all the time. I love it. Number four. And this one actually, you know, I might get in trouble for this one because most of the most of the guys that I read and and really like and I've benefited from a lot. A lot of them are saying this today, but I think it shows a slip in the moorings of the Church of Jesus Christ and their historic founding. So these are good men, but I want to say this. Obedience is not faith. You hear of the obedience of faith, but I will have you look at that. I will have you look at this confession right here for a minute. Let's see if I can find this. All right, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness alone, on on his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. It is not alone in the person justified, but ever accompanied with all the saving grace, and is no dead faith, but worketh by love. So here's the thing. I hear a lot of preachers that I love and that I listen to and have taught me most of what I know say that faith is obedience. But the reformers said no. Faith is not obedience. You see. When a man is asked to count the cost. And to decide whether he's going to follow Jesus. That means that that man has already received faith. No one could count the cost and decide to follow Jesus if God had not changed him, had not opened up his eyes and changed his whole heart, his hard heart, given him a view of the glory of Christ and his surpassing greatness and ability to save, and shown him his sin and misery and the fact that the the law had declared his death and that he would suffer eternity in hell, if a man didn't have at least some understanding of that, He would not turn, repent, and follow Jesus. Now, these two things are so linked together. They are inseparable. You'll never find a man that's saved that hasn't repented and turned to Jesus. But repentance is the first good work that Christ works through us. It is not the instrument of salvation. Uh, the reformers were very clear on that because I, I tell you, that's the argument they were having with Rome. You're not saved because of your repentance. You're not judged to be righteous because of your repentance by Christ alone. Now, you really need to check that out because I just stepped on some people's toes. Let's go to our text. Romans 1.16. I chose this text... For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I chose this text because at the beginning of the massive revival that we call the Reformation, it began with Martin Luther. I'm not saying that there were not people before him but i'm talking about the massive revival it really did begin with martin luther a roman catholic priest a doctor of the church he was dr luther his job was studying and exegeting the the scriptures and teaching it to the church and this was a man who had lived his whole life in fear of death and hell because he knew roman catholic doctrine that if you're not righteous And if you die with sin on you, if you die with any corruption remaining, you're going to hell. Or at least to purgatory. And he knew that he did not have the righteousness required to escape the judgment of God. Though he tried, he became a monk because he was trying to escape hell. He went into a monastery to try to to take away all possible things. He spent all his time studying the Bible, praying, doing works. Preaching, teaching, all those things. But despite all of his best efforts, his soul was still terrified. He would write later that he actually hated God. Why wouldn't he? God was out to get him. But in these verses, Luther found peace for his soul. You know, Luther, because he knew the Bible very well, knew that God was holy and just, and he was right about that. He knew that God did not change. God is just and he hates sin and he will always hate sin and no sinful person can be in his presence and live. Therefore, the person who is corrupted and defiled by sin, any sin, cannot enter into heaven. A little leaven leavens the whole loaf of bread. Even one sin is enough for God to condemn you. A sinful creature has reason to fear God because there is no place to hide for him. Luther knew what we've kind of forgotten in this age. That in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. I'm going to say something a little different to you now. Maybe you haven't heard this before. But the environment of man is God. I know you think the environment... Of man is God's creation. But it's God's creation. It's God who upholds this creation. This creation wouldn't last a moment. If God through his power. Was not manifesting his glory. And his attributes through his creation. Of which we are the chief and pinnacle. Of this creation. So Luther knew that man. As long as man was. Would always relate to God somehow. You can't escape it. And he knew that God didn't change. And so he knew yes, God is love and he can relate to his creatures in love. Yes, God is mercy and he can be merciful. But if you're a sinner, how is God going to relate to you? With wrath, with justice. People that are in hell. I'm not saying hell isn't literal burning fire. I don't doubt that it is. It's going to be a physical physical punch. But people in in hell have moved to the state where they're under the constant experience of God. But it's the constant experience of the wrath of God. That's what Luther knew because he was a good Bible student. He also knew that sinners living on the face of the earth were not experiencing God's full wrath now. And that was only provided for them because of God's mercy. Give man time to repent from his sin, to turn and be purified so that they might be able to face God at the judgment that was coming. So what brought Luther to the conclusion that God would justify sinners, right? If God doesn't change and he always hates it, what came to the conclusion that he would justify sinners? And, that, and the reason is because he came to the conclusion, based on these verses and the rest of the teaching of Romans, that the work of salvation was 100% God's and depended on no contribution from man. Let me make it a little clear: Not only is our salvation 100% God's, everything he's done for us and in us, but if we even were allowed to make a contribution to our salvation, it would ruin it. That's why when the Galatians wanted to add for their justification, keeping the law, said, yeah, I'll be complete if I do this. Yeah, Christ has done all this for me. He's forgiven my sins. But now I'm going to do this to stay in a good relationship with God. That's what the Judaizers were telling them. Jesus said, then you have no part of Christ. You can't add. You can't add. And the first reason... and and the first reason that that Luther came to this conclusion that was always because of the gospel itself look at verse 16 it says for I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation so the gospel what is it the gospel is good news the gospel is the good news of the power of God for salvation and so what is the power of God for salvation what are we being saved from what what did God do in order to save us from his wrath? From the consequences of sin. If you look at, uh, at the first four verses of Romans, Paul introduces, he's a brilliant man. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, from which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is the good news that the promise that had been made through the prophets in the Old Testament that God would save his people, that he would come and rescue them from their sins, from what they had lost by their fall into sin and misery, that God would send his son who would also be David's son, Into the world. And that he would accomplish that task for him. I'll give you the whole gospel in one verse. Turn over to Romans. Chapter 5. Look at verse 15. For the free gift. It's free. It's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass. What does that mean? That means that when Adam sinned in the garden, we lost something. We lost something that now threatens us. In Jesus Christ, all right, then it says, let me get a little get too far off here. For if many died through one man's pr- trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded to many. Sixteen. I'll take two verses. For the free gift is not the, re- the the free gift is not the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many transgressions brought justification. So Paul's point here. Was that one man sinned and all fell into sin and were condemned by that and became sinners. And so there were many sins. But then Christ came and by his obedience to the whole law in our place as our surety. He earned the blessing of God. The gospel of grace is not that grace was free to Jesus. He earned it. He did all that was required of man, of Adam. He is the second Adam. He did all that was required of Adam and more. He gave his life. That's the positive obedience spoken of in this confession. And there was more than that that he needed to do. Because man had sinned, he had to fulfill the requirement of the law, which the penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus died. He abided under the wrath of God. I can't even understand the God of glory taking on human flesh and suffering the wrath of God on the cross, and death, on our behalf. Adam violated God's command and brought forth the penalty of sin in light and manner. Jesus saved us from sin and its consequences by perfect obedience to the law of God, which, because of sin, not only required perfect obedience but the satisfaction of sin. Now, I know most Americans are rugged individualists, and they do not like the idea that their sin of their father, Adam, could possibly put them in a position where they were born in this world already condemned because of the corruption that they inherited from him that was imputed to them because of what he did. They think that they should stand on their own bottom and be, be judged for what they are and what they do, that it would be unfair if, in fact, God was to judge them in Adam. I've got two things to say about that. First, if you think that way, you're thinking that way because you're under a philosophy other than the Bibles, you better go to the Bible alone. Perhaps you do not understand the unity of the human race. We don't seem to understand the unity that we have now. I mean, we don't seem to like each other very much. But uh, there is only one human nature. And that human nature was the nature that was in Adam. All the nature that we have came from Adam. It was, it was given to us. There's only one human nature. And just because you are individuals don't mean, does not mean that you don't have the same nature that Adam does. You do. So if your father, Adam, who had a perfect human nature, and by the way, I assume that he was more talented than any of us because, you know, all the, all the human gifts and geniuses and all that we see, you know, he had all of that. He passed it along. I always chide my son because he became a lawyer. I said, man, you took the gifts that I passed along to you and you turned it to the dark side. <laughs> yeah. But you think about that. Your, your father, Adam, everything that all of us have, it's been distributed out. But, at, but Adam, he, he, he had it all. You know? So he, he had a perfect human nature. He was not a sinner. He was not prone to sin. He was free. And he was placed in a perfect environment. And he was given the whole world. You know, Jesus said, What good does it do a man if he, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Adam is made and he's perfect and he's, and he's got this beautiful wife and he's given the whole world and he still managed to lose his soul. How did that happen? Well, he had the whole world with the exception of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You got all the trees to eat from. You got all the land It's all yours, all the oceans, all the, all the animals are under your command and under your control. You're to go out and subdue it and populate it. What a great future. And you had an eternity to do it. You weren't going to die. So you had this one thing that God set aside. And then he was warned by God that the penalty for eating was death. And that's because there's a creator-creature distinction. God was made in the image of Adam. He was the ruler of the earth under Adam. I mean, under God, I'm sorry. He was the ruler of the earth under God. He was the image of God on earth. But there was still a distinction between the creator and the creature. So the ability to determine or the knowledge of good and evil was not up to Adam. The law of God, what is good and what is evil, is eternal. What is good? Good is what God said good is. God is good. The right thing for a man to do is to love, to be kind, to be generous. The right thing for a man to do is to be like God, godly. So, with all those advantages, Adam still committed cosmic treason. Because like the tempter who had rebelled against God and sought his throne before him, Adam, listening to the suggestion of his wife, <laughs> you know, took an aid. So, you know, perhaps you don't understand the unity of the human race. Perhaps you don't understand how fair God was when he did that test. And secondly, maybe if you still won't buy into it, maybe you don't understand the seriousness of, of a sin against an infinitely holy God. In Him we live and move and have our being. He is good and His generosity flows to us. We owe Him everything because He gives us everything and we ought to be incredibly in love with Him and giving Him all praise and glory in So when Adam reached out, And took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm going to tell you something right now. He broke every command that there could be. He coveted. He stole. He murdered himself and us and his wife. You look at it really closely. You will find out that is completely right. And it might seem like a small sin. But that's only for people that don't understand a holy God. And their relationship to that holy God. But if you still don't like the idea of being a sinner because your father Abraham was a sinner, then I have another suggestion. Switch daddies. You're a sinner because you were born of a sinful stock. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, and he came into this world, and God promised him an offspring, an offspring that would be more numerous than the sands of the sea, of the stars in the sky. When John looked out, the revelator, he saw the host of God redeemed and restored, born again by the power of the Spirit, and brought into perfection by Christ. And it was more numerous than he could count. He didn't give a number. So if you don't like being a sinner and being the son of a sinner, and suicides go from being a relative of Adam the first to an offspring of Adam the second Jesus Christ this is the good news for sinners that Jesus has secured 100% of the blessings of God and he has paid 100% of the penalty of the law for sinners the gospel is monogistic God did it all in his son on the cross. And he did it through the obedience that we owed him. But that we could not. And still cannot give him. My next point is, is this gospel has the, has the power to save. Its, its power to save is complete. Whatever the penalty resulting from sin. Whatever Adam lost. Christ more, is more than sufficient to repair, to heal, and to reconcile. Sin made us subject to God's judgment. Jesus' life and death more than reverse the guilt penalty, guilt, the verdict. The moment you first believe, right? Christ has already reconciled you by his life and death on it, but you don't, you don't have possession of it yet. But the moment you first believe, the moment the spirit of God opens up your, your heart, gives you a new heart, gives you eyes to hear, gives you ears to hear, gives you eyes to see, ears to hear. That moment, that declaration of guilt and of curse is totally reversed. That's why Jesus spoke of two resurrections. The first resurrection is was happening. He said, even in my day, that the word of God is going out. And those who hear are raised to life. The Bible says the moment you believe in God, you have eternal life. That's not something that you earn, that's something that Christ earned for you. And you get it by faith alone. And by the way, you're not going to lose it. Luther came to understand that. Because if the gift that Christ gave you is eternal life, and you can lose it the next second. Because you had a bad thought. Then it wouldn't be eternal would it? Sin made us subject to God's judgment. And Christ's. Life. Of obedience. And his obedience unto death. Reverse that verdict. Next point. When Adam sinned. Adam lost his Freedom. And we lost our freedom. He became a he became a slave to Satan. He became a slave to his own corrupted nature. Turn over to Ephesians two one through three. You're familiar with this here all the time, but read it again. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passion of our flesh, carried out by the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. When man sinned, he lost his freedom, he became a slave to Satan. He became a slave to his own sinful corruptions. Jesus broke the power of reigning sin in us. Christians are different. Bob's been laboring. He's been laboring to show that, you know, you need to make your calling election sure to see if there's any marks of the power of the gospel in you, of of God working in you to do his will. Of of you becoming a person that's not enslaved to the world. That is not enslaved to Satan. And God does break the power of reigning sin. Not only that, the Holy Spirit protects us from the evil one. We are not strong enough. You're not strong enough or good enough to do it on your own, okay? Ask Peter. You know, because when Jesus says... You know, when they came to get Jesus, Peter jumped up, took out his sword, and he was ready to die right there on the spot to protect his Lord because he loved him, because he wasn't going to see him taken and humiliated. What happened just a few hours later? He denied Christ. I don't know what the early church fathers and all were thinking of when they said, if you commit a mortal sin, they actually, the Roman Catholic Church actually at least be believed in the forgiveness of sin. You had some people that went so far straight from the gospel early on that they believed that after you became a Christian, if you committed a mortal sin, that was it. That's why Constantine delayed his baptism and many Christians delayed their baptism until they were on their deathbed. Because <laughs> that's what they believed. If I sin after I've been washed clean, that's it. I don't give a second chance. That's why you got in the Apostles' Creed, which is a sixth century the doctrine, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. You know, you've got to watch churches. Just like us. They are sanctified and purified and instruments of God to go out and to do as well. But they are corrupt. But he's working on them. And he loves them. So Jesus died to make us free. But there is one difference between this freedom that we have and justification justification the verdict of not guilty innocent righteous before god is 100 in this life to every single one of you every single one of you has the same standing before god based on the righteousness of christ but freedom begins now but it will not be yours completely until you are com- totally transformed completed and actually sanctified see the roman catholics could read the scriptures and say you know without holiness no one shall see god you're right. You're not going to be able to enter into heaven with even one bit of being a slave and a servant of Satan and all that. But if you, if you wonder if you've got it whipped, think about what the Roman Catholics teach as far, as far as mortal and venial sins. Do you ever have a bad thought? Do you ever slander somebody? Do you ever, ever left undone the things that you think that you ought to do? All of those are worthy of hell. You're being controlled by something else other than the Spirit of God that's in you when you do that. So there's a certain amount of power that is taking you away. But I will say this even though the sin is only, the corruption of sin that enslaves us is only partially removed during this life, still God is there to protect us. He will never let us go so far. He may leave us for a while to experience the fact. That we can't save ourselves and that we're dependent on him. That's what he did to Peter, to make him fit to be a gospel minister. I'll tell you right now, I wrote my Bible when I was a little boy because my mother, she loved the Lord. I never had any trouble listening to sermons in the church. I I, I I, believed in Jesus when I was very young, and I loved to hear the preaching of the Lord. And when I was 12, I wrote my Bible. I wanted to be a pastor, and I dedicated my life to being a pastor for the Lord. You know when I went to, how old I was when I went to there 34 years old. Why the delay? Well, I thought that I believed in Jesus and therefore that I was good. I believe that, you know. I knew that I was a sinner, but I knew that Jesus forgave me and therefore I thought now I wasn't a sinner. Then I became a teenager. And that corrupt nature began to grow. And and I found out, you know, not only, you know, is there evil out there, and I'd always been against it. I'll tell you a funny story. I better make it quick. I was a little evangelist in my neighborhood in a way. I remember uh, there was a neighborhood. They were Roman Catholic, by the way. Guy was a doctor. Wife's name was Agnes. When I got older, I was, was meeting with them in a little neighborhood gathering. You know, I mean, I was you know, I don't know, 30 something, this was that, and she said, do you remember when you came over to my house and you were looking in the pantry? And I asked you, I was about seven, Steve, what are you looking for? And I said, I'm looking for the devil. You know, they were they were Roman Catholic, they drank. My mother was a good Baptist. That was a bad thing. So she told she mentioned while I was in the house that there was the devil was in the cabinet of those people. So I was over there looking for it. She thought that was, you know. But I you see, I, I believe what my mother <laughs> told me. But when I got, you know, when I got old enough, I found out that there were remaining remnants of sin, and I had to be taught. That if I was going to be a useful servant of Christ, I better stay close to God. I better be keeping my eyes upon Jesus. I better be dependent on the spirit of God. I wasn't going to make it. Well, I'm out of time. So I'm going to just close it up here because I could give you a million other things... of of what Christ has done for us and, and how he saves us and cares for us and how his spirit is completing this. I will mention one more thing. Everything that we lost, including our bodies, will be restored because of the work of Christ. Because he rose again from the dead, you will rise again from the dead. Sin won't even have dominion over this body. That's why you don't want to be going out there and abusing your body at all because this body is precious to God and he's going to, raise it up again but that's an entirely future benefit all those uh, you know all the spiritual benefits you'll start getting now but healing all your diseases and 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 raising you up and making you strong and glorious and imperishable that is yet to come so we believe in christ alone we know that we have power through faith in him alone let's pray father we thank you for Your grace in Christ to us. I pray, Lord, that you will make him large in our lives. And that we will seek daily his strength and his power. Which you have certainly given to us, his people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.